Welcome to the Cricket's Sidecar, where we go a little further into a story of note with the person who wrote it. Hi there, and welcome to Sidecar. I'm Erica Brown, editor and publisher of the Manchester Cricket. I'm going to start by saying that on Sidecar, we've talked to a lot of different types of people. We've talked to veterinarians, we've talked to hydrologists, we've talked to ecologists, technology folks, farmers, historians, and we've talked to a lot of people who serve our municipalities and our school systems, and we definitely have covered elections, but we've never really gone beyond local seats and boards. Today, we're going to start doing something a little different. The state election is coming up fast in November, and the primaries are going to be on September the 6th. That's coming up super fast. And there's a lot of reason this year to look beyond our local municipalities and races and look beyond it to Essex County. And that's what we're going to start doing. Manchester was part, you may not know this, but a lot of people, a lot of people don't know this. Manchester was part of a redistricting that happened uh, last year after the 2020 U.S. Census. And we're now in District 5 for our state reps. And we're going to get to that later in, in the coming weeks. But for today, we're going to start with coverage of Essex County races. And we're going to start with Paul Tucker. He's a Democratic candidate for Essex County District Attorney. Essex County, as you know, is four, 34 communities, cities and towns. It's a wide, wide spectrum of communities from like rural towns to large cities and I'm just going to say the central role of the DA's office, many people think they know it, It's and I think I know it, but we're going to learn a lot more today. I think of it as bridging law enforcement with the court system and prosecuting crimes. I think that's what most people think of, but of course, if you really do spend a little more than a, just a minute or so thinking about it, there's more to it. It's about supporting victims and witnesses of crimes. It's about diversion programs and rehabilitation. It's about figuring out what to do about nonviolent juvenile offenders and drug addiction programs. I guess what I'm saying is it's not just about prosecution. So that's why it's an interesting topic to get started with. Paul Tucker, our guest today, is from Salem. He's a Salem native. He, for 32 years, Paul was in law enforcement in the Salem City Police Department, and that culminated as the chief of that city's police department for four years. And then Paul pivoted to eight years as the seventh district state representative, um, representing Salem and, and the rest of the district. Um, and you've been there for the last eight years. And somewhere along the way, um, you secured a law degree. <laughs> so it's a long career. It's a wide ranging one. But anyway, that was a very long introduction. But I just wanted to set up the stage for the conversation. And um, I hope you don't think it was too long. But I'm going to start, Paul, by just asking you, why did you decide to run for district attorney? Sure. Thanks very much, Eric. I appreciate it. And hi to all the listeners. So I, I had my whole adult life has been in, in public service. As you mentioned, I had 32 years in the police department in Salem. The majority of those, I ran the detective division. I oversaw a group of 10 detectives, investigated every type of crime that, that unfortunately comes across the desk of an investigator in the course of a career. And I, I finished my career for my last five years as the chief of police. I have been a state representative now representing Salem at the state house for the past eight years. And I saw the opening for the district attorney's office with the upcoming retirement of John Blodgett as an opportunity to further my public service and put my skill set to the extent that I hope folks see the job of the DA as it lines up with what I have done with my professional life. I've, I've been in higher ed. I've been a professor at Salem State and at North Shore for 20 years. I taught at Endicott College for 12 years. 
Mm-hmm. And really, if you take a look at the what I say is the breadth of my experience, I think it lines up perfectly with the job of a district attorney. And you captured it very well, Eric, of the job of the DA. It's simply not just securing convictions and, and putting people in, in the incarceration system. There is so much more. And frankly, it's about justice. And in many, many cases, it's about keeping people out of the system and trying to get better outcomes for them, which really is better outcomes for society. Well, it's very interesting. You, you just used two loaded words. Like one of them is justice. And it's funny. You use the word justice in, in a, a race for DA's office across the country. And I'm sure you're going to come to some radically different quote unquote solutions and strategies. And what struck me about you is, um, particularly in the last, like, let's call it the last 18 months with Black Lives Matter and sort of the whole defund the police. And what struck me about your career and your tenure, particularly before state reps, so before I want to get to have, get to the police and 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 uh, your experience in Salem, which has gone through a dramatic change. And when you were there as chief of police, it was a very different city. Did I get this right? Um, you were already ahead of things that we're now talking about today with police training and mandatory training and mental health. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about some of the things that you saw at Salem and and some of the and what drove sort of some of the policies you you started to pick up and and focus on first in Salem and then at the state house? Yeah, early on in my career, I realized that we couldn't arrest our way out of all of our problems. We have obviously some significant um, issues around substance use disorder, around mental health. And in my career, I realized that arresting as many people as we can and incarcerating as many people as we can, is simply not the solution. And frankly, I think in the entire country, we missed for decades, we missed the rehabilitation piece. We missed the treatment piece. We missed the education piece. And in all of those cases, we had a punishment-based system. So when I took over as police chief in 2009, one of the first things I did was create a unit I called the Community Impact Unit. And that has really become the model for lots of police departments now, not only in Massachusetts, but around New England. What I wanted to do was put a unit together of police officers backed up by two mental health clinicians that we hired with a with a, a background in social work, not to replace the police, but to complement the work that they were doing around de-escalation, around working with folks and getting involved in what I refer to as quality of life crimes. Unfortunately, in Salem, we have a significant homeless population. And one of the things that we saw continuously was these folks were ending up in the district court At some point, they would end up at the Middleton Jail, and they would sit there for a couple of months at the cost of tens of thousands of dollars a month, and then present back on the streets of Salem with the same issues that they went in with. Mm. So what we did was we tried to break that that whole shift and bring these folks to the station and get them services through our mental health clinicians. The other thing that that we that we tasked the, the clinicians with was if we had any overdose in Salem. The next day, that person got a knock on the door by a police officer and by one of our mental health workers offering help. We did that 13 years ago. We continue to do it today, not to replace police officers, but to work with them. I think the whole defund the police movement for me is a non-starter. I think it's about building relationships. It's about working with folks in the community outside the realm of law enforcement. Now, certainly law enforcement is part of the job. There's no question about that. But it's really about building relationships. And some of the things that we did during my tenure, we took over an abandoned building in Salem that was city owned. And under the police department guidance with Mayor Driscoll in partnership, we created a community center staffed by 
police offices, staffed by community leaders, recreational leaders. And I actually had some people in, in made some critical comments that why is this police department's job? I look at it as police officers being part of the community. And this was one of those things in the community where we could show we could make a difference. Well, it was really interesting. Um, and and uh, it's funny, people are sort of settling into that. And, and I, I want to get back to sort of your career, but in terms of our own backyard, one of the, the big things that we've struggled with is um, the fact that, especially on Cape Ann, we have sort of uh, highly seasonal police forces. And so what we're doing is we're now dealing, our municipalities are dealing with the fallout. And it's not really fallout, I shouldn't say it that way, but the consequences, let's just call it the consequences, the financial consequences in small towns for the cost at uh, $50,000 a year on average per officer to train um, officers, whether they're part-time or full-time. And so what happens in, in our own backyards is that we're now mandated with training police officers, which are now, once they're trained and once we in, invest in them, they can be poached by other towns that have full-time positions, which of course we want them to be successful, but it's a uh, a challenge that we're, we're all going to have to deal with. And that, that includes everything from, you know, from Gloucester and, and Ma Manchester and Essex. We all have the same exact issue, and so does Rockport. I don't know if you want to say anything about that. I, I, do. I, <laughs> I do. landed I do. that in your lap. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. It's an, important, it's an important discussion to have. And I know that there's a disproportionate impact, particularly on smaller communities. So last term at the State House, we passed a bill on the police reform called the Police Officer Standards and Training where we put minimum requirements in that a police officer had to have before they worked the street. We also understand that there was a domino effect here as well. On the, on the positive side, what we put in place was a licensing of police officers. And if I can just boil it down to its simplest terms, in, in this state, we licensed barbers, electricians, plumbers, estheticians. We had no system of licensing police officers. So if there was no licensing, there was no minimum requirements. And what we were finding was, in some cases, police officers were terminated, and because there was no license needed, they were turning up in other communities, and some of those folks should not have had the, the honor and the privilege to wear the badge. Unfortunately, with police officer stands and training, there was a whole segment of officers, the part-times, the seasonals, that got captured in this same net, so to speak, where the training had to be minimum requirements. The idea is that you could be pulled over in any part of the state and when you see that officer's name over their pocket, you could look up them and you can see their background, you can see their disciplinary history. What we were looking for simply was a transparent system to make sure that we have good, solid, strong, professional men and women in policing. And what we're trying to do now is to figure out the best way that we can combine those seasonal offices and see if we can help the small towns while making sure that we still have good, robust standards in terms of selection, hiring, training, promotion, which still trying to figure that out. And I know that there has been an impact on the smaller towns. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, I just um, before we move on, I, I would tell you this, that um, what I failed to mention is that Manchester and Essex both got accredited by the state very, very early at a time when accreditation was extremely rare, actually. I think that less than 10% of municipal police forces actually had been accredited because it was a very arduous uh, process. 
And our chief of police at the time really pushed that and brought Essex along uh, with Manchester. We got accredited and then Gloucester is now accredited as well. And it's much more uh, common now for um, municipalities to be accredited. The only reason I mention that, and this is for the benefit of the listeners, is that training is actually much, much easier for accredited departments. And so as a result, that's been another kind of vector into sort of um, our challenge. But yeah, and my my hat is off to those departments. Having having got the accreditation under my tenure as chief, we were very proud of that. Essentially, what it says is that that your department is engaging in the best practices that there are and is going to keep these high standards to keep their accreditation. We were fortunate in Salem in my second or third year as chief, and it was an arduous process. We were able to get the state accreditation as well, and it's something that my that my successors have maintained. And I think that the citizens should should feel very fortunate that that the police leaders in your community have done this. It certainly is the best practices. Well, they're very very proud of it, and it, and it really brings in mental health and best practices for rights. It's it's a, it's very comprehensive. Let's just call it that. Yes. Let's get back to um to you <laughs> and um your tenure at the Massachusetts as a in the um as a state rep. You've had a lot of kind of areas of focus and some hallmarks that you've been really involved with. I, I'm thinking of marijuana policy, right. education, the judiciary, uh, homeland security, things like that. You want to talk a little bit about the things that you just have been able to get in your eight years? Sure. So when I when I was first elected, I decided purposely that I wanted to do something that I didn't have much of a background in to learn something and also do something to, that would play to my strengths. So I, I put in for the education committee. And I ended up serving as six years as a member, and I, I finished as the vice chair. Um, some of your listeners may be familiar with the Student Opportunity Act that we passed two terms ago. That was actually my bill. That was my mm-hmm. House bill that passed along with the Senate side, and it's really transformed education. So I, I accomplished my first goal of doing something that I really had never been involved in. I also served on the Judiciary Committee, and I served on the Public Safety Homeland Security Committee. And as a result of having a seat there, I was able to work on uh, criminal justice reform over the last six years. In Massachusetts, uh, we passed a bill a few years back. It was a 600-page bill that I worked on, and it really transformed uh, how we keep people safe in this state. And, and I think Massachusetts has some bragging rights here. We're number one in terms of per capita of incarcer- the lowest incarceration rate in the nation. We're also number one in terms of the lowest gun violence rate in the nation, number one. That's a direct result of some of the things that I was able to work on with my colleagues at the State House. I also had opportunities. I was the I was the statewide co-chair on a special commission on juvenile and adolescent crime. I've been involved in, in prison reentry. I, I did um, some work on, on reforming solitary confinement. And I think that that speaks to really my dedication to public service. There is not a lot of constituency and, and voice sometimes for, for men and women that are incarcerated. And I, I didn't I never wanted to be pigeonholed, so to speak, that I was simply a law and order person. So it, it really it really helped to expand um, my work and my portfolio working in, in reintegration of helping folks get back into society and, and having better outcomes. I, I worked on a pilot program out of Middlesex County where when inmates and they were in this case was 24 young men were getting within six months of release, I was able to get funding for a project where counselors would go in and meet with these young men prior to release, 
sign up Mass Health, get their Mass ID, have job prospects, a place to live. The alternative is these young men would step outside of the facility on the day they finish the sentence, and where do they go? So this is a recipe for success, and we've had some very, very good success in that line. Yeah, I know that's a big problem. I know that um, years ago when uh, when uh, Middleton, the Middleton jail was first opened up, I remember they had a, an issue that they just didn't plan for. They didn't. How would you have planned for it? Where when inmates were first released, this is probably three months after the facility opened a long time ago. They they it never occurred to them to say, oh, my goodness, um, our inmates will be released into the streets of a suburban town that they are not familiar with. They have often English as a second language sometimes, and they have other issues where it's it's hard to navigate um, around, and they didn't have any resources, and they literally had nothing. And it was something that was a big wake-up call for um, the the sheriff's office at the time. And this was, again, a very long time ago. And you're right on, though, and that that was a problem. And and fortunately, we've come a long way. We've made some significant investments in reentry, and we are seeing the success of it. Yeah, exactly. And and that was actually my point is, is that that was a very long time ago. And it's a, it's crazy to really think back and ponder that in light of today and how far everything has gone. I also think it was very interesting when we were talking, when we met, you had mentioned that you were inspired also. I'm going back to the solitary confinement, um, you know, sort of work that you've done. And you were really inspired actually by, and it, this is after you'd already done a lot of work on it. So this wasn't what triggered your interest for sure. But you saw a documentary film from the Salem Film Festival and Joe Cotrera. And I, that wasn't his film. That's his film festival he was associated right. with. But it was about a film about the uh, impact of solitary confinement in a negative way up in Maine. Is that correct? You saw a film? It is. It is. And, and we have a wonderful uh, film fest every year. Joe Joe, and Stan Schwartz and Stan Franzine. We have a, it's a, a robust film fest. So uh, to the point, I, I one of the documentaries that I watched was a very raw, very graphic, nothing off, off the record. Everything was in this film. Mm. And I watched it and it had to do with the men in solitary confinement in the state prison in Maine. There were over 100 men in solitary. And as the film went on, you could see the, the mental health deterioration of these inmates. Mm. Some really tough, tough guys that went in on the first day, you could tell in the film, they would say, you know, they can't break me. I can do this. And very slowly, you would see over a week and then two weeks to, to the point where these, some of these people were just a shell of themselves. And in some cases, some of these men were released directly from solitary confinement to the street. Think about that. that that's that's a, a, a disaster. I, I can't even say it in strong enough terms. The good news is that a new a new superintendent came in and brought in mental health professionals, brought in psychologists to work with these men. By the end of the film, there were only eight men left in the film. Everybody else had either been released or gone back into general population. The film made an impact on me, so I got a copy of it. I actually got a copy through the film fest. I brought it to the state house. I showed our leadership team. They were equally as moved. And because of that, you will see in the last four or five years in Massachusetts, we have done solitary confinement reform. And I tell that story only because I, I, I just want the folks to know I always prided myself on doing my homework and not being afraid to get involved in something, to right or wrong if I saw it. And that's just one small example of, of something over, over my public service career and where sometimes little things can make a difference. It's, and I just love the fact that you were impacted by the Salem Film Festival. It's a, it's a, the, I think it's the 
one of the largest and most established documentary film festivals in the country now. It's really, we should be proud of it. It's in our own backyard. Um, okay. So let's, let's now talk about your run really quickly. I mean, I feel like I'm sensing all these themes, you know, about rehabilitation, early intervention, mental health as a big, you know, white, you know, big elephant in the room. Now I'd like to talk about just sort of what would you like to accomplish by running for district attorney? You want to be district attorney? What, what do you want to accomplish? What do you think are the big challenges that can be met through you in this office as opposed to, you know, where you are now? Yeah. So I've been an attorney. I'm in my 22nd year as an attorney, 32 years in law enforcement, eight years at the state house. Hmm. What I've done and what I've seen has really led me to this moment. And I think if we look nationally, there's been a reckoning on racial justice. Finally, there's been a reckoning on making sure that we support good police officers and make sure that we take out offices out of out of a criminal justice system that hmm. do not, not deserve to, to wear the badge. I also think the DA has a tremendous role here with the use of discretion. The DA has the discretion of whether somebody is charged or not, the discretion of whether somebody is diverted from the system. And frankly, I think that I bring good judgment to doing that. Sometimes people need a second chance. We don't want to incarcerate somebody at 18, 19, or 20 and have their record follow them all the way through, through jobs and housing. Sometimes people make mistakes and they deserve a second chance. I know the difference between somebody who's in recovery or is in the grip of addiction. There's a world of difference between somebody that's trafficking in fentanyl, which killed 2,300 people in Massachusetts last year. Mm. It's about making good decisions. And I think we have to do it. It's incumbent upon any leader to do it through the lens of equity, through racial equity. I just served an 18-month term on Salem's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Board, and it opened my eyes. I realize the privilege that I have as a white male, the privilege that I have is not the same lived experience that somebody else has that has a story to tell. I worked very, very closely at the State House with the Black and Latino Legislative Caucus. And some of the stories that my colleagues told me growing up in some of the inner cities where, where they were raised, just some horrifying stories. What we, and I say we collectively in, in, as public leaders, we need to make sure, one, that we put a spotlight on this bad behavior, on this racism, trying to dismantle the structural racism. The DA has such an, an incredible pulpit to call these things out and to make good decisions with integrity. At the end of the day, Eric, if, if we make bad decisions and, the, and there is racial disparities, it undermines and, and undercuts the entire criminal justice system. People lose faith in it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I would do every day as district attorney, is to work to keep, not only to restore, but to keep the faith that people have in the system, that it's working for everybody, not just a selective few. And those aren't just slogans. Those aren't just words. That's something I've dedicated my entire professional life to. I've worked with the DA's office now in my 32 years as a police officer. I worked on over a thousand cases as part of the prosecution team. From arrest to verdict, there isn't anything I haven't done. I've seen this firsthand. I've been in every court at every level. I know that I have the experience to do it. I have the vision to do it. I've been an innovator. Um, I, I did it as a police chief, and I would do it now. I just think now is the time. There's not a, there's not a minute to waste. Well, I think that this has been a really rich discussion. Um, thank you very much. I mean, it, it's uh, now I understand what you mean when you say justice. <laughs> There's a lot of sort of progressive ideas. Um, you've been ahead of the game on many, many big issues, and you're 
looking directly at many issues that we see and hear every day in terms of whether it's, you know, opioids um, or diversity and equity. Mental health is a big one. And I think it's really, really interesting. And I think now I really understand your background, your career, and why you're running right now. Very interesting. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. It's, it, it's important to, to folks all across Essex County to, to make sure that they know the background of, of who they're voting for for the next district attorney. Absolutely. All righty. Well, thank you very much for spending some time with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sidecar. To hear more Cape Ann stories like these, subscribe to the Sidecar podcast from thecricket.com on your favorite podcasting platform.